Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member special access to cool events behind the scenes footage and so much more plus you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon it's in you please be in it visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now that's podcast with an s thanks from kqed We want to talk about something really important, something that shapes our everyday lives, our neighborhoods and our homes. It's a set of rules that controls what gets to be built and where. Houses or factories, apartments or offices, shops or warehouses. These rules have such a wonky name, though, that we were literally going to go the entire episode without saying it once. That is, until someone else said it for us. They want to abolish the suburbs altogether by ending single-family home zoning. Yes, zoning. That was Patricia McCloskey at the Republican National Convention this summer. You might remember her. She and her husband were the homeowners who drew their guns on Black Lives Matter protesters in St. Louis a few months ago. She was at the convention because President Trump has made protecting the suburbs and preserving single-family zoning part of his re-election campaign. This forestry zoning would bring crime, lawlessness, and low-quality apartments into now-thriving suburban neighborhoods. Single-family zoning is what created suburbs. But when it began, it was about more than just separating homes from apartments. It was about separating white residents from everyone else. And it's at the root of the segregation we see in our neighborhoods even today. In some ways, it all started right here in California, in the true blue liberal bastion of the Bay Area, Berkeley. I'm Erin Baldessari. And I'm Molly Solomon. And this is Sold Out, Rethinking Housing in America. I live near Berkeley, and when I go running in the area, I pass by the Claremont neighborhood and all these big, beautiful houses. But there are also these looming brick gates. They're right at the entrance. And when I see them, I get this uncomfortable feeling, like I'm not supposed to be there. That feeling you have? That's by design. Those gates were put there to keep some people in and to keep other people out. I went over there to check them out for myself, and there's a historical plaque there. The plaque says these entry gates help define one of Berkeley's most gracious residential areas, Claremont Court, which was designed to attract the growing number of prosperous Bay Area professionals in the early 1900s. The elegant red brick pillars heighten the formal ambiance of the area. Those gates were built to signify that Claremont was a protected white community that no one of color could live in. That's Dorothy Walker. She's 90 years old, and she's lived in Berkeley for a long time. She even went to college and met her husband there. I married a Japanese-American man when I was only 20 years old. 
And actually, that was only three years after the miscegenation laws in the state had been repealed. So uh, it was uh, somewhat uh, of an outlier thing to do. Even though it was legal for them to get married, they still weren't allowed to live anywhere they wanted in the city. When Joe and I got married, we basically lived to the west of Martin Luther King because that's where we could find a place to live. So we saw the segregation right at that point. Dorothy would later serve on Berkeley's planning commission, where she fought to desegregate the city's neighborhoods. She says housing segregation in the city dates back to the early 1900s, a time when the Bay Area was still relatively undeveloped, when Berkeley was a suburb of San Francisco. This developer, Duncan McDuffie, was building new subdivisions in Berkeley, including that neighborhood with the Gates, Claremont. But those homes came with a big caveat. They were for whites only. The deeds to these homes had racial covenants, restrictions that barred people who weren't white from buying or renting in the neighborhood. McDuffie justified it by saying that allowing people of color to move in would lower property values. It was an economic scheme uh, using the racism that was endemic at that time um, as part of it. But McDuffie and other developers, they had another problem. What to do about the neighborhoods they didn't control. McDuffie was particularly concerned about a Black-owned dance hall that was looking to move into a neighborhood nearby. So he and other developers got the city to do something that no other city had. Make it illegal to build anything other than a single home on a single lot in certain neighborhoods. We know it today as single-family zoning. We were the model that started here. And Berkeley prides itself on starting all kinds of things. <laughs> well, we have to look at our roots. Unlike the racial covenants, there wasn't anything explicitly racist about zoning. What Berkeley did was different. It used economic segregation to separate neighborhoods in the city. Single-family neighborhoods were just more expensive because buying a house costs more than renting an apartment. You have a house on a large lot and... Uh, and you're, so you're not living cheek by jowl with someone else or in an apartment building, you were going to pay a lot more money for that. And wealth and race were inextricably linked, just like today. The first planner that they hired who suggested they build a, a parkway and a series of parks entirely across Berkeley that would be the, the dividing line <laughs> between <laughs> the white people and everything else. And of course, the everything else included all the industrial and harbor and waterfront uses, as, as well as all the people of color who were expected to live in that part of town. The parkway was never built, but the dividing line was certainly enforced. And the industrial area was also where it was legal to build things like apartments or two homes on one lot. With the expectation then that the white people would live in the, in the single-family neighborhoods. And this idea that homes should be kept separate from apartments and other kinds of affordable housing, it came to define suburbs across the country. But almost 50 years later, with the rise of the civil rights movement, single-family neighborhoods would be challenged in a big way. It was the summer of 1967. Cities across the country were in flames. In a hundred places, Detroit is a fire. Demonstrators took to the streets in response to police brutality against black people. Cops confronted them in riot gear, sometimes shooting into the crowds. 
700 round squeezed off. Now all of a sudden it's silent. Tense quiet. Everybody looking around. This outpouring of anger was decades in the making. White people had been fleeing to suburbs and buying homes with the help of federally backed loans. But redlining and other government policies kept black people largely confined to cities, often living in rundown apartments or doubling up in houses. And people were demanding change. Jobs with livable wages, decent housing, and an end to segregation. In our myth, we believe that housing was adequate. But at the same time, we knew that open housing was not practiced. But it would take Martin Luther King's assassination, almost a year later, for the government to act. A week after MLK died, Congress passed the Fair Housing Act. The Fair Housing Act is the last major legislative achievement of the civil rights movement. That's Stephen Menendian. He's the director of research at the Othering and Belonging Institute at the University of California, Berkeley. Basically, the Fair Housing Act in its original iteration did two things. The first thing it did was prohibit discrimination on the basis of race, national origin, and a few other protected categories in housing. This was a big deal. Racial discrimination had long been baked into every step of the housing process, including who got to buy or rent a place. But the act went even further. The other thing it did was it had a provision that required government to affirmatively further fair housing. That last bit, affirmatively furthering fair housing, that meant it wasn't enough to write a law and say, now you can't discriminate against someone because of the color of their skin. The Fair Housing Act said cities and counties had to actively desegregate housing. That is, locate affordable housing in wealthier suburbs. And the backlash was huge. City governments across the country started doubling down on single-family zoning in order to block affordable housing, even making it illegal to build apartments in areas where previously they had been allowed. These new rules were challenged from the start, but the Supreme Court ultimately upheld them. And in most cases, they're still on the books today. So it's still really hard to build any kind of housing other than single-family homes in a lot of cities across the country. A New York Times analysis found that about 75 percent of the land allotted to housing in major cities is reserved for single-family homes. Stephen and his colleagues found that the percentage was even higher in the San Francisco Bay Area. 83 percent of residential area is exclusively reserved for for single-family homes, which means that only 17 percent of residential land in the entire Bay Area is available for apartment buildings, for condos, for denser housing options. Having a lot of single-family homes with big yards did something else. It really cemented economic and, by extension, racial segregation. And in many places, it's actually as segregated today as it was in the 1970s. In some cases, it's even more segregated. As you you increase the percentage of single-family zoning, you really increase the percentage white. And the percentage Latin, X, or Black goes way down. So there's a really strong exclusionary effect by race that's clearly related to single-family zoning. And where you live really matters. Where people live connects them to schools, connects them to jobs, it connects them to healthy environments, safe environments, or it exposes them, like in Flint, to poison 
or it exposes them in the COVID crisis to disproportionate risks through crowding. To close these wealth gaps, Stephen says it's not enough to just invest more money into schools or parks in low-income neighborhoods. You have to make it possible for people to move into wealthier ones. Building affordable housing in high-opportunity areas is essential to really give, especially people of color, the best shot in life. People have been fighting affordable housing or any new housing in suburbs for decades. But it feels like we're at a breaking point with affordability, with racial inequality, with climate change. Do single-family neighborhoods still make sense? A growing number of people are saying no. We need to imagine a new future where our neighborhoods do make room for more people. Coming up on Sold Out. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just What we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio, was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. People across the country are challenging the idea that we should have neighborhoods where only single-family homes are allowed. That means changing the zoning in order to allow for other types of housing that's more affordable. And it's stirring up some pretty strong emotions. People are getting priced out of the city. I oppose the plan. We do need more housing. Our population is growing incredibly. You shouldn't be tearing down our neighborhood. Minneapolis was the first to take on the sanctity of single-family zoning. The city was facing rapid population growth and a severe housing shortage. So in 2019, it decided to legalize triplexes, where only one home had been permitted before. And then... We're starting with a controversial bill in the Oregon legislature that could have a significant impact on your neighborhood. Oregon became the first state to pass a law to legalize fourplexes in most cities. In California... It's still an open debate. Lawmakers have tried for at least two years now to end single-family zoning by allowing duplexes throughout the state. But the latest effort fell short in the literal 11th hour. We're here debating it at 11.30 p.m. at night, the day before the end of session. Every day, more and more people in our state are pushed into homelessness. As we all know, we need to drastically increase our supply of affordable housing. This problem will only continue to get worse if we do not. 
Supporters say California needs to change zoning to make a dent in its housing shortage. But we have a California, if we continue on the present path, that is going to be unaffordable for the next generation. Totally unaffordable, and we all know it. Over the past 10 years, California has built less than half of the housing it needs. That leads to a housing shortage, which drives costs up. And whenever there's a shortage of a critical commodity, low-income families, poor families, never get their fair share. That's Adam Briones. He's the director of economic equity at the Greenlining Institute, a research and advocacy group in the Bay Area. A recent study from UC Berkeley found that if just a small percent, I mean, we're talking 5%, of single-family homes converted to duplexes, it could result in nearly 600,000 more homes being built. And in theory, those homes should be less expensive, which means that it could open up neighborhoods to Latinx, Black, and Asian homeowners who've previously been excluded. You're giving an opportunity for a family that perhaps could never afford a million-dollar home, but perhaps can afford that $500,000 home that's in the back. And so now, you know, the benefit is, A, you're housing two families, and B, you're housing that second family in a neighborhood they, they wouldn't have otherwise been able to move into. But I've also heard critics say that simply building more housing won't guarantee that it's actually affordable. I don't think we should be asking for an invasion by developers into communities across the state because we're too lazy, quite frankly, to have more meaningful conversations about how we're protecting communities and finding ways to build housing that people truly can afford. People like Adam say we need to do both. Build more and invest in truly affordable housing for people who need it most, especially seniors, people with disabilities, and people who've been homeless. I think that most Californians want a state that everyone can be a part of. Even though the latest attempt in California didn't end single-family zoning, supporters have vowed to try again. But it doesn't have to come from the state. Cities already have the power to change their own rules. And that's a conversation that's happening right now in San Jose. There's a proposal to allow fourplexes in most single-family neighborhoods. If anything, the recent debate shows just how difficult and how personal these changes are. All of our kids would love to stay in this wonderful state. All of our children would love to someday live near their parent and live near their grandparent. This is such a radical departure from what we have. This will change the fabric of California. It will change the character of your neighborhoods. Part of what makes it so scary is that we're talking about our homes. I get it. I get it. You know, where you live, the home you buy, the neighborhood you live in, that's probably the most important decision that you can make uh, for yourself and your family. I would also say, you know, do you want to live in a state that can grow as our population grows? Do you want to live in a neighborhood that includes all the diverse voices and faces and families that we have as a state? Or do you want to stay on the same track? And and do you want our neighborhoods to become more and more exclusionary? And, And do you want our cities to become more and more segregated? It makes me think about Berkeley and those gates. I grew up in the city, and I've always worn that as a badge of honor. Being from the Bay, it's so progressive and diverse. But really learning our history, knowing who these neighborhoods were built for, it makes me think about my city differently. 
I'm Asian, my mom's Japanese, and it's hard to look at some of those old covenants and rules and not make it personal, because I know now what they were meant to do. So when I see those gates, part of me will always feel like I'm looking at them from the outside. Even though I live nearby now, I look around and nobody looks like me. And that neighborhood is still one of the most expensive today. When I think about how neighborhoods like Claremont might change and grow, I don't imagine these fancy homes side by side with towering apartment buildings. But, you know, maybe there's a granny flat in the future or a few duplexes mixed in. Because if we want a future in California where everyone can afford a home and where everyone feels at home, we have to start somewhere. We have to start where we live. Next up on Sold Out, we're going to take you back, way back to 40 acres and a mule. The original promise was about land, and it was never fulfilled, which is one reason why Black Americans are so far behind when it comes to home ownership. This is about giving people what they're owed at the end of the day. That's coming up next week. If you like what you've heard so far, make sure to subscribe to Sold Out on Apple Podcasts. While you're there, leave us a rating and a review. It really helps other people find the show. You can also follow us on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. And we want to hear from you. Find us on Twitter. I'm at Solomon Out. And I'm at E underscore Baldi. That's E underscore B-A-L-D-I. Sold Out, Rethinking Housing in America is a production of KQED Public Media. Erica Kelly is our editor. Jessica Placek and Kiana Mogadam helped produce this episode. Sound engineering and original music by Rob Spate. And our editorial leadership team at KQED includes Erica Aguilar, Ethan Tovin-Lindsay, and Holly Kernan. I'm Aaron Baldessari. And I'm Molly Solomon. <laughs> 